0: Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. So, this episode is going to get posted a little later than usual. I usually aim at about 1 o'clock to one thirty on a Saturday, but for the past, now, month, I've been having work done on my terrace, which was supposed to only take two weeks. And so today, we had some work done, and that delayed me. So, it's going to get there but just a bit late, probably towards the evening. This is the second time that a friend who's already been interviewed on this program, Candy Azara, has suggested a topic to me. And today's topic is going to be about fear and our relationship with God. I know, and I hope you bear with me, that I always seem to have as a frame of reference for many of these podcasts, my own childhood introduction to Catholicism, and uh, it began at the end of the 1950s. So we are talking about just maybe 10 years post Going My Way and Bells of St. Mary Catholicism. My actual school was right out of those days, maybe even out of Victorian times. The main building, the convent building, where most of us who were in grammar school had our classes, was all serious wood, dark, deep wood, steep stairs, and wide, carved banisters. The windows were from the ceiling to the sill maybe three feet off the floor. You had to use a long-handled wood stick which had a metal hook to open and close the top of the windows. Learning the faith was by rote and that's in keeping with our as yet undeveloped frontal lobes. So there was little nuanced explanation for the sorry state of our souls marked before our baptisms by this massive stain of sin committed not by us, but by these adults called Adam and Eve who ate an apple from a tree they weren't supposed to. And let's just say now in terms of what image we kids got, All hell broke loose. Our nuns, which were Ursulines, looked very much like one of the main characters in Going My Way, which was played, by the way, by Ingrid Bergman, and the main character of the priest was played by Bing Crosby. Talk about beautiful casting uh, in terms of the look of these people and their way of responding on screen. Our nuns were covered Head to toe in a black habit, which included uh, a white undercovering that basically went down on the forehead, and then there was a wimple over it and a veil. And then very often they carried large rosary beads that hung from very thick black leather belts. Now, I know a lot of people that I've talked to over the years who went to Catholic schools have said they had terrible experiences with the nuns, uh, especially, I think, boys had that experience. But I went to an all-girls school, and although the nuns were firm and were, in their way, frightening because a look from one of them would be enough to cause you to take notice, but quite frankly, they were also kind, and there was a certain sense of their being otherworldly. It's funny because my father, who at that time was not Catholic, kind of played into the sense of a child's view of otherworldliness by telling me that nuns had no feet and that they actually floated because their, their outfits were so close to the ground that you couldn't actually see their feet. So he, he kind of added to a slightly superstitious view of the Catholic Church's nuns and priests because children aren't very nuanced. And so, maybe necessarily, but in a way, causing lifelong issues for people who grew up in that environment, there was a sense or an imposition of a very either or way of looking at the world, a very black and white looking at the world, enforced by a kind of psychological authority that had an undercurrent of fear. If you did this, there would be a consequence to you, kid. And it was hard for a child to distinguish between the dogma of the Catholic Church and the very strange small rules that were imposed on us. For example, this very strange thing that you couldn't talk in the restroom, which was called the lavatory. And if you talked in the restroom, you could get into serious trouble and have your mother informed of your transgression. But why was it a transgression? No one ever explained it. In fifth grade, with a teacher I actually liked very much and kept in touch with long after I was an adult until she developed some form of dementia, actually gave me a 10-point demerit in conduct. Yes, we got rated on our conduct, which I think wouldn't be a bad thing today but I lost 10 points in my conduct because I was twiddling my thumbs while listening to some class lecture. Now, this is something I didn't do very often, so I must have been very bored by whatever's going on in the class. But those very small things that I rarely did in the first place kind of morphed into a sense that everything I did was being watched by someone and I had some kind of an obligation to be, well, Perfect, which was impossible. So I guess what I'm saying is that there might have been some confusion for some of us kids, and I say some because there were always those few who just didn't worry about what the teachers said, and sometimes I envied them, and would do exactly as they pleased, and didn't care if they got into trouble at home. That wasn't me. I think children with undeveloped frontal cortexes take events and things said to them and things they observe and they merge them not necessarily in a logical fashion and so what I think happened is that for many of us kids fear of God which is a good thing became confused with plain old fear like being abandoned cast away and sent to the fires of hell and all of that was confused with small transgressions because we lived in a little world and in our little world our small transgressions were big. The God presented to us at Mount Saint Ursula with great innocence was a lot like the angry God of the Old Testament even though we were taught about Jesus the second person of the Trinity yes they did say it's a mystery well because it is but we were too young to be able to begin to take in the interrelationship of one God in three persons well even now no matter how old we are we are still children to God so we may still be too young to completely understand so first what I missed as a youngster what's the difference between fear of God and just plain fear fear of God in its purest sense is i have read and i think is the most apt idea is a recognition of the greatness the awesomeness the creatorship of our very author we owe god our existence he is the one who breathed life into humanity he encompasses us we are at sea without him even that dramatic idea we look into the abyss Without him fear of God is about owing him the utmost of our human response job that poor guy in the Old Testament who had every single thing taken away from him when the devil said that the only reason that job is your good servant is because you've given him everything he's got this great life so God took it all away from him to prove to the devil Why he felt he had to prove it to the devil, I don't know. That's beyond me, theologically. But to prove to the devil that, no, Job would listen to God, would love God, despite every form of humiliation and suffering thrown at him, which is exactly what happens. Jesus Christ, in his human nature, feared his father in that way. Mary, his mother, feared God in that way. She couldn't understand what he was asking her to do but he was asking her to do it, and so she said yes, she cooperated. And while you could say she probably experienced the other kind of fear, it was overtaken by her fear of God and by ultimately a trust that so superseded any kind of natural human fear. And so fear in that way I was just saying, that latter form of fear, is the way that I mostly have experienced it and I think many have, if not most of us, is that it's more about the bad things that could happen to us, and we don't trust that despite those things, God is still with us. In a way, this type of fear is the opposite of the letting go of Mary and Job and Jesus. We become overwhelmed by what is known as false evidence appearing real, fear. That's what the acronym stands for to some people who are experts in the area of psychology and uh, recovery. We imagine ourselves accidentally, perhaps, as the Creator ourselves, the controllers of the circumstances and their results. So for a minute, let me go back to Mount St. Ursula and the experience of my childhood. I was the skittish only child of a very authoritative mother and a working father who was aware of his wife's strict rules about how a child should behave, not merely children, but how all people should behave, and he buffered her fearsomeness somewhat. So I had that at home. And then at school for five to six years, pre-Vatican II, where God was counting my mortal sins, and where I worried more about his just punishment than acting out of a sense he or anyone was worthy of my love, and love and friendship were primary, there was a sort of superstition that developed. So my fear of God became less about letting go and acting out of love for him or for others than watching my step lest at home or in school someone would say I had transgressed a written rule, an unwritten rule, or a rule not otherwise specified. Everything became the burden of obligation and less a matter of responding in love. My behavior became the business of the neurotic. And in a strange way, God gets taken out of the equation while replacing him and trying unsuccessfully to control everything when in fact I could, we can control nothing. When I studied psychology, I took a class on cognitive behavioral theory and one of the progenitors of that theory was a guy named Aaron Beck and another one named, um, oh, what was his name? Ellis, I think his name was. I may be wrong, but it doesn't matter and he talked about Albert Ellis, that's what it was, Albert Ellis. And he talked about the nature of people who continually catastrophize. They engage in the what ifs of the fearsome until they can no longer act. And I have to admit that much of my life I was like that. Thank God, and I do thank God that I have found that somewhat less as I've gotten into my older age. But I don't think I'm alone in that. In fact, one of the first things that comes to mind is a character from television uh, that I used to watch called Monk, and it was about a former police detective in San Francisco who, in order to make a living, becomes a private detective because he can't work the regular police job Because of the murder of his wife and he becomes completely obsessive compulsive he needs a hand wipe every time someone touches his hand or gives him a friendly kiss on the cheek he's afraid of literally everything he has a laundry list of things he does repetitive actions touching objects in numerical order to prevent danger which of course in his line of work even as a private detective he's in danger all the time He doubts everything. He is in a perpetual state of hypervigilance. How would we define that? A fear of life, quite literally. What's interesting, though, given what's happening around us right now, is that he essentially has become the normal one. In fact, I guess around April or so, Tony Shalhoub, who played the character of Monk, actually did a video about how Monk would respond to the pandemic. And actually, when you think about it, he would do very well because he's already doing all the things that we have been now remonstrated with to do every day and very possibly into 2022 and beyond. This man of fear is a standard of behavior held up to us all as the acceptable, the healthy, the charitable, and the good. The other example would be the so-called thrill-seekers, the ones who go and live with bears and pretend that they are not wild animals without conscience and will eat them. In today's circumstances, one might say that those who go into large crowds without wearing a mask in the face of the pandemic would be of this sort of thrill-seeker or rebel. Monk has his talismans, as we now have ours with the ubiquitous mask. These devil-may-care characters are in a way also relying on a talisman that their very recklessness can protect them, that by being brave, you can conquer and overcome death itself. In a way, each time you survive, you do, but the ultimate reality, death, always remains. Only one person conquered death that way, and he didn't do it for himself, but out of love and concern for our souls. Then there's this other intermediate group, perhaps the best of the groups of this sort. Those are the people you'd call a saint, someone like Damien or Mother Teresa, who are risk-takers in the extreme sense because they go and work with people with terrible diseases that will likely lead to their own deaths so that for example damien worked with the lepers of molokai and mother teresa although she did not die of anything from this work would work with the very sick and poor of india in both cases the likelihood of death is definitely there and they're not doing it except much like our lord although they can't conquer death they're doing it in a sense of following our Lord and in trying to help others. And they don't seek to control. They recognize that the only one in control is God himself. In the two extremes, the monk extreme and the guy living with bears, in both of those examples, the person who is either seeking to protect themselves from risk or to press the boundaries of risk And also, if I were to be honest, in my own little world of fear, fear of punishment by cosmic forces, God seems to have no role. We rely entirely, again, on our own efforts to be safe from whatever it is we fear. What does fear look like for you? Not having enough money? Not passing a test? How many people have had that anxiety dream about missing a test and failing a course? Losing a child to drugs or alcohol? The ordinary things are quite enough for most of us. Concomitant with my version of monk fear, a form of ruminating OCD, doubting every action I take, I've also had another kind which I think is common to most of us. And it makes me think that at base, certainly it's really a part and parcel of pride, pride which engenders fear and causes us to make things worse or to destroy what is already pretty good in our lives. I'm wondering if that kind of fear did not play into Eve's listening to the devil, fueled by a pride she didn't even realize she had. The devil tells her a story. God is trying to get one over on you by forbidding the knowledge of the tree. And to your husband, Adam, when someone says that another person is getting something that you don't have. That engenders a little bit of fear. Come on, it happens to all of us. So in that moment of fear that has as its source pride that I need to be seen the best, the most, the important, you do something you shouldn't do. Use your will in a way that actually destroys what's already good or makes things a lot worse. It's almost as if the devil in his use of words created a compulsion in her or saw how to generate a seed of it in her. And so he says this to her and immediately she grabs for the apple before she's really had a chance to consider the consequences or darn the consequences. And she condemns humanity. Don't get mad at me for saying it was the woman that's not what I'm saying because her husband had every opportunity to say no Eve we're not doing it so I guess this is another level of fear that we have which is based on our interpersonal relations the ordinary stuff that isn't about physical danger or death which is itself ever-present but in our just ordinary dealings day to day a fear that we are invisible And that it doesn't matter what we do, so we must sort of gather our acorns and and hold them close in proof of our existence and our importance. An example of this is probably what is worst in our political system and the people who now govern us in that basically what they're most interested in is maintaining their little territories rather than giving to the people whom they represent. Their way of being is so different from the concept of the statesperson who used to exist in our country and in other countries at some point in the past. When I was a working person, I remember how much chalking for position went on in the jobs that I had to the point of absolute destruction of other people by gossip and by machinations of one sort or another. Even my young Catholic school education, despite the message of humility, somehow gave us the impression that we had an obligation not just to achieve, but to be known, to be in some ways important. That's what getting grades in a way is. I'm not complaining about getting grades, but you got approved for being best for being seen, and that can morph into something very unhealthy. There's a prayer that I had found or had been pointed to some time ago, and I was saying it quite a lot, but it's kind of long, and I get lazy, and I haven't lately, but having done this program today, I hope that I will get back to it. And what is so amazing about it, is to me it shows the deep relationship between fear and desire, sometimes unhealthy desire, and that every single thing referred to in it applies to me. My desires and my fears and the things in a way that have gotten, not in a way, that have definitely gotten in the way of my relationship with God, and have caused me, despite being schooled in the nature of Christ's suffering and death and what that means to follow him has caused me to almost pretend that that's not what being Christian is about. I'm going to read it because I think this is what encompasses the day-to-day struggle with fearful desire. And you can decide for yourself which of these things have gotten in your way with your relationship with God and your faith. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being approved deliver me o jesus. From the fear of being humiliated deliver me o jesus. From the fear of being despised deliver me o jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes deliver me o jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me o jesus. From the fear of being forgotten deliver me o jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, O Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I go unnoticed, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. For those of you who say well this is terrible this is entire self-abnegation i don't know that i can explain it but i am positive that that kind of self-abnegation is exactly what not only serves god but also grants complete and utter peace the image i have is when peter saw jesus and wanted to get to him right away and went on to the water. And as long as he was focused on Christ, on the power of Christ, not on his own power and control, he was able to walk on water. He could achieve that which, if he tried to control life all the time, every day, he would never be able to achieve. But with God, he did. But as soon as he took his eyes off Christ, from the gaze of Christ, He fell into the water. He sank. I'm not saying don't work hard. not saying don't achieve because certainly, like most of us, I attempted to do the same thing, but it's the motivation, I think, that gets us caught up in our fear and in our envy and in our misbehavior, if you will. I'm not sure I can articulate this. If I could, I'd be a great philosopher, but I'm not. It's as if in the middle of the worst things finding out you have cancer losing a child having a serious car accident losing a job being accused of something you didn't do it's as if you can trust in god which is difficult because we're human and frail but if you can do that i see that uh, something the martyrs did it's what mother teresa did it's what damien did there are these nuns that I like very much who basically are nurses and provide free nursing to people who can't afford it, and particularly where someone needs care over a night and the family is tired and allows the family to rest. They're called the sister servants of Mary, ministers to the sick, and they are the happiest people I have ever seen, and they lead tough lives, and that's the thing that I think God can provide if we keep our gaze on Him. I'm not saying this is someone who's successfully done it. I've had little split seconds of doing it, but not enough. And clearly, not in my control. It's about my letting go of the control I refuse to let go of. So that's what they do. I think that's why they're so happy. It's as if God provides this oasis inside your gut, in your soul that no matter what is happening around you, you have no fear because your ultimate focus stays on Him. I think you have to practice doing it. I think you have to start small. How you respond when ordinary small problems develop, getting a flat tire, breaking your arm, dropping something on your foot, you start there and then work your way up to the big things with God's grace. Will that eliminate fear? Clearly not. But in time, the fear may be outweighed by a sense of peace in simply accepting what the Lord has allowed to happen in your life. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but about three years ago, it seemed as if I was having car accidents all the time, three in one year, where somebody hit me in each case and was demonstrated that they hit me. One of the accidents, the first one, was a side hit. Someone turned into me as I was going through an intersection. And my car spun around. And I remember thinking, I'm probably going to die now. By the way, I had just come from Mass. I had just received communion. And as I saw the median coming at me and a small tree, and I swung around to the opposite direction on Santa Monica Boulevard, I was in the strangest moment of peace. I wasn't angry. I wasn't cussing. I was noticing what was happening, but I wasn't even afraid. And I'm a person who's always afraid. So I know it's possible. You could say, well, you know, your adrenaline was pumping, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I got to tell you, I had enough time to be afraid and i wasn't and i think that was a gift a beautiful residual of our lord being present within me whatever your personal affairs right now outside of us it's a tough time and we're all living through it you can be cynical about it you can be angry about it you can be fearful of it you can make jokes about it out of your fear but there is something comforting and not easy in that comforting believe it or not, about saying, I'm just going to rely on the creator to allow me to survive emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually through all that is happening to me, personally and nationally and in the world. It would be great if we could accept God's oft-repeated words without critique, without suspicion, and as a gift, be not afraid easier said than done absolutely worth trying to do with god's grace absolutely Mm -hmm. thank you for listening to another episode of ordinary old catholic me we'll be back next week And hopefully soon we'll have a few more interviews. I keep hoping that I can bring more people in here uh, to my apartment. uh, But right now with COVID, that's very difficult. And I'm still trying to figure out remote versions of doing this. So hang in there with me and enjoy the rest of your day and week.